Welcome to After Hours, an interview podcast series from Lady. I am Laura McClaus Helms, the fashion and cultural historian. So much of what I'm seeking to learn about in the interviews for Lady's After Hours podcast is about how cultural creatives have followed their passions in order to mold their ideal lives and careers. What choices have they made? Where did those choices lead them? What was unexpected? What was better than they ever could have expected? The paths my interviewees have taken are quite diverse, but they are always driven by a depth of curiosity and enthusiasm that is outside the normal constraints of society and business. In June, I was lucky enough to meet with the graphic artist David Lance Goines at his printing studio in Berkeley, California. Incredibly multi-talented, Goines is an artist, calligrapher, typographer, printing entrepreneur, and author, yet he is probably best known for the posters he illustrated for local Berkeley businesses, which have been reproduced and sold worldwide. Most notably would be the work he has done for the legendary Chez Panisse, which was opened by his former girlfriend, Alice Waters. His book covers and annual posters help define the visual identity of the restaurant for food lovers around the globe. In much the same way, his posters have created the visual identity of Berkeley. For those who have never been to Berkeley, their understanding of the town has come from his work for Chez Panisse, Pete's Coffee, and many other small local stores and companies. David grew up in Oregon, learning about art from his calligrapher mother. He enrolled at the University of California at Berkeley as a classics major. While there, he became tangentially involved in the free speech movement in 1964. Though not closely associated, he was arrested and expelled along with seven other students in September that year, which set off protests and controversy that shook the country. The free speech movement was the first mass act of civil disobedience on an American college campus in the 1960s. Students insisted that the university administration lift the ban on on-campus political activities and acknowledge the students' right to free speech and academic freedom. His expulsion spurred him to become more involved and believe more deeply in the importance of what they were after. Following his expulsion, he got a job apprenticing at the Berkeley Free Press, where he went on to print many of the materials for the movement. Through his work at the Berkeley Free Press, he met Alice Waters in 1966, who was working as a PR in a political campaign and visited the press to pick up flyers. Almost immediately, she moved in with him and began to teach herself to cook, a response to her recent trip to Europe that had exposed her to a new understanding of food and the enjoyment it can bring. They began collaborating on illustrated recipes, which were first published as a weekly cooking column in the San Francisco Express Times, and then as their first book, 30 Recipes Suitable for Framing. With the money earned from that endeavor, he purchased the print shop, which he renamed St. Hieronymus Press. Still working there today, that is where I had the luck to meet him, surrounded by the accumulated matter of 50 years of creativity, with the constant low hum of machinery in the background. We dove into all aspects of his work and life, his artistic influences and his passion for the classics, the free speech movement and the book he wrote on it, the importance of community. What was so interesting was hearing him speak about the various elements that helped him and Alice attain such success at a young age. Even though times have definitely changed in many ways, particularly in the cost of living, I found it inspiring to hear about their commitment, passion, and lack of fear. All of these characteristics have served him well over the years as he has built and sustained a career where he is highly respected for the artwork that he loves to do. I hope you find this conversation as enlightening as I did. Please head to our website to see posters from throughout his career and read a short article. Enjoy! Thank you so much for agreeing yeah. to sit down with me. My pleasure. I've been a fan of your posters for a very long time. Thank you. Just having seen them around and you know, slowly put together that they were all your work. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just wanted to get in touch and talk to you a bit about your life and career. Okay. Yeah, I usually start with Tell me a little bit about your childhood. My childhood? Well, I was born during World War II in rural Oregon and raised there and my father moved to Fresno mm -hmm. in about 1952. He was a civil engineer, worked on dams and spillways. <clears throat> and then we moved to Sacramento, from Sacramento to Oakland, where I went to high school. Mm -hmm. Developed an interest in classics. Greek and Latin language and literature, and enrolled at Cal in 1963, and attended there for one year. And at the beginning of 1964, I became involved in the free speech movement, mm -hmm. which ended my college career. And I started working as a printer, and have worked as a printer since then. Mm -hmm. So. Growing up, I know your mother was a calligrapher, She, right? Yeah, calligrapher and artist. Were you interested in art yeah. as a child? Yeah, well, in, in graphic design. Graphic I wasn't design. ever interested in art, really. I, mm -hmm. liked, I did 
in high school I did um, you know posters for people when they were for concerts and whatnot and did some printing which is how I became familiar with the printing medium printing by mimeograph and um, <clears throat> but I never really considered it as a career I was headed toward academic becoming a classicist which didn't work out <laughs> uh, so when you got into how did you get involved in the free speech movement was that um, I was one of the people who was expelled I was um, selling a supplement to the general catalog which I had contributed artwork and uh, worked on and so mm -hmm. when I was asked to stop doing it I refused and that evening I was kicked out so and then I you was free as a bird and then I, you continued to be part of the movement correct or well yes I mean in a sense mainly what I was was a printer mm -hmm. and uh, the political activity you know, other people were out there running around and raising signs and rioting, and I was busy printing because they needed printing. And mm -hmm. I was far more important as a printer than I was as a as a participant in the uh, rallies and whatnot. So I was pretty low key, just running a printing press. But you were arrested at one point, right? I've been arrested more times than you have fingers and toes. <laughs> You're just discussing that over lunch. Wondering whether I still had an active record. I don't think I do because I was all when I was underage. Mm -hmm. There's some FBI stuff on me that you know, that's about it. And that was all because of the printing and because of because your of political activity. Yeah. Um, we were we were fairly I don't know high profile isn't quite the word. We were we attracted the attention of the authorities and remained in their eye for quite a while. And then it sort of gradually faded away. I don't think they even know I exist anymore. When you started apprenticing, did it immediately seem like, oh, this is something I'm going to do for the rest of my life? Not or? really. I just liked it. I liked I liked printing. It was important. You know, I was involved in, you know, all sorts of political activity. I was involved in the civil rights movement very actively in the summer in the uh, 1964 through 1965. So printing was just a part of that. Very gradually, I started doing artwork, which I of course, of course, could print. Mm -hmm. And in the by about 1968, I started teaching a course through the Free University of Berkeley, mm -hmm. which was a little offshoot of the free speech movement. And it was in calligraphy, and I realized I needed some instruction for the students, so I began writing instruction pages and printing them, of course, and before I realized it, I'd actually written a book. Mm -hmm. So I took the book and printed it, and um, it was very well received. It was kind of strange. It was not something that was commercially, no publisher would have displayed much interest in mm -hmm. it, because it's, it's just too weird. It's really big, and it's, so I printed it and bound it myself because I could. Mm -hmm. And it was very successful on, on, you know, of course, on the small scale. But it sold for many years. And um, it was extremely well received. And I subsequently printed another book, wrote and printed another book on a slightly different hand. And when Alice Waters and I became acquainted and started living together in the late 1960s, we wrote a cookbook for an alternative newspaper, which by the time it folded, we realized we had a cookbook. Mm -hmm. So I printed that too, but I, I don't know if it I've was, seen pages from it. Seen that? Yeah. Right, so that was printed and did extremely well, which gave me the money to buy the shop. And so, what kind of, what, when is this the press from? I mean, the, the way that it, the, the quality of the printing is so beautiful. I was and a printer. Uh, yeah, I know, but I was what good is at it? Yeah. <laughs> Is the, was there an older press? That it was. Yeah, it died the death. Uh, in 2014, it had to be turned into Toyotas. Mm -hmm. And I got a new press. Yeah, it's, I mean, you can tell that you're very talented. It's beautiful. I mean, not only is the calligraphy beautiful, but the quality of the printing is Yeah. Beautiful. Well, I had a lot of help there. A, a lot of very skilled people helped me with that. It's, it's a kind of printing that's a little bit complex, and I, I'm not going to try to explain it to you. 
but many people think the book is handwritten, which of course That's is, what it looks which like. is silly. You know, obviously you're not going to handwrite. Yeah. But a lot of people do think it's handwritten. I mean, you know, it do, it has. You can tell the yeah. the different weights of the pen. Exactly. You know, come and through. It was done intentionally. It's called a dropout halftone for okay. if that helps you in any way, which it doesn't. I'm sure. A little tiny. It's just bit. just a technical term yeah. for getting rid of the whole background while keeping the image that you want to keep. Mm -hmm. you, you basically create masks. So anyway, it was it was a, a bit of, it was a surprise to everybody and it did very well. It sold in local bookstores, which was quite encouraging. And when I got started with the um, the recipe book, I printed that was in the late fall of nineteen seventy. And I printed 500 copies on scrap paper. I didn't have any money for paper. Mm -hmm. We had a ton of scrap paper here, and of course, you know, there I was as a printer. So I printed 500 copies and took them to a local culinary store on Shattuck Avenue, which was called The Kitchen, and they sold it in three days. So I thought, okay, well, that's pretty encouraging. So I turned around, took all that money, and bought paper and produced 5,000 copies, which sold out in the next month Amazing. from one store, right? Yeah. So now I was, you know, pretty well bankrolled, so I used that money to buy the shop and get more paper mm -hmm. and print more books and print more of these books and print more of the other books, and I realized that as a commercial printer, it, this wasn't working. The place just went bust again and again. So having purchased the debt of the previous owner, um, I said, we're not going to do any commercial printing anymore because that obviously is not going to work. And mm -hmm. so I just did my own stuff. And I'd done maybe four or five posters using this equipment, and they were well received. And so I started doing posters and graphic artwork and a few more books, and the community was very receptive, mm -hmm. and it was really encouraging you know when I have seen so many of your posters over the years it seems to have defined that a, a lot in a lot of ways the visual identity of Berkeley it has it, it's very surprising how I've, I've been more than one time surprised by how welcoming Berkeley is to its own people mm -hmm. you know Alice Waters when she opened the Chez Panisse restaurant it was immediately embraced by the community. And said, this is really weird. Oh boy, let's go for it. And same with Pete's Coffee, which opened up in 1966 on Vine and Walnut. It was immediately embraced by the community. There's none of that, you have to go somewhere else and prove yourself and then come mm -hmm. back. It's, we're, we're very, Berkeley is a community that has been defined by its own internal activities for an extremely long period of time. I suppose you could even go back to the 1930s, maybe even before then. Berkeley is, is incredibly productive of new things, starting with the atomic bomb, we'll start with that, you know, and of course then uh, August Volkmer, the first police chief of Berkeley, reformed police tactics in the whole United States. I mean, he, with his one crummy little police chief of Berkeley, became one of the most important police chiefs in the history of the United States, and so on, right? Mm -hmm. It just goes on like that. So what you have is a tradition of people generating their own vision here mm -hmm. in Berkeley and the city of Berkeley embracing it. So... Has it changed at all? Not to my knowledge. I would say that Berkeley has changed from a working-class community surrounding a university to an upper-middle-class community mm -hmm. surrounding a university. I mean, obviously, in the 1970s on, Berkeley began to change. Um, the demographics began yeah. to change. But I think that has only served to enhance that aspect of Berkeley because one of the things with an upper-middle-class community is lots more money. Yeah. And that means that things like you know the concert I went to yesterday at St. Mark's Church of the California Box Society, which is actually the Berkeley Box Society. Mm -hmm. I mean, nobody in the California Box Society is from anywhere but Berkeley, so it's like you know the 
uh, San Francisco Early Music Society is actually composed entirely of people from Berkeley and okay. so on, right? Mm -hmm. There's that, it's a big early music festival right here right now, which is happening in Berkeley and San Francisco, but it's Berkeley people. Mm -hmm. And so you get a very well, hyper well-educated, um, multi-talented people with a surprising amount of disposable income, which is how it was a little different because it was only the university students themselves, which right. of course had zero, zero disposable income. Um, so in that respect, yes, it has changed. And of course, rents have gone through the ceiling. Berkeley is not only the most desirable college community to live in, it's also the most expensive college community to live in. So, you know, yeah. uh, Walking around, it's really beautiful. It's a beautiful place. It's, Berkeley is, horticultural it's just a big garden yeah um, it's taking a lot of photos of our bizarre garden. climate here uh, lets us grow anything you can grow anything mm -hmm. it won't necessarily amount to much you can grow corn it won't really turn into much corn but it's kind of startling how well things grow here mm -hmm. my garden at home is just you know crazy you know, is it a seed it'll grow it has to do with uh, the very even cool temperature, we have redwood trees, and it's, it's defined by that, this little narrow band of fog mm -hmm. that comes in. So, honestly, it's a garden. Amazing. It's nice to live in a garden. And when you moved here, first moved here, did it immediately feel like home, like the right place? I was never going to leave. Yeah. I mean, basically, there's two kinds of people, the ones who come here and say, I can't get out of here fast enough, and the other kind of say, I am never leaving, mm -hmm. and I was the I am never leaving type. Second, I graduated from high school. Well, actually, before high school, I was haunting Berkeley. Mm -hmm. But um, the second I graduated from high school, I made a beeline for Berkeley, and that was it. Never left. And when you started dating Alice, was she already doing cooking, or now? No, this? she was. She was finishing her uh, uh, degree in French literature, and um, we met. In June of 1966, she was working on a political campaign, mm -hmm. and she was the press liaison. So every day she came by here to Get the see the things that were being printed and take them away. And before long, she stayed. Mm -hmm. So, were you interested in food? I ate. Yeah, you know, that was sort of something that developed yeah, while it, you were. Yeah, her her interest in cooking. She just returned from France from. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, a tour, basically, of Europe, and was all fired up about her experiences. She had basically not known that there was such a thing as food. You know, there was fuel. Mm -hmm. It was like shoveling coal in, yeah. right? And but the concept of food as a uh, social or emotional experience it was brand new to her, and she was completely full of it, just bubbling with excitement about what she'd encountered in France, southern France, northern Italy, and came back and I had uh, two friends who lived half a block from us, uh, Charles and Lindsay Shear, and Lindsay was a very talented amateur cook, and she and Alice got together almost immediately and started, we would just trade back and forth, and she began, uh, we began throwing dinner parties about once a week. Mm -hmm. And she would cook and experiment and learn, and um, with the expert help of Lindsay Shear, uh, her talents blossomed. And I was at the same time doing graphic design and um, learning to do artwork. And, mm -hmm. we, and some things we collaborated with, like the cookbook, for example, yeah. and the. It also should be emphasized that this was a time when making enough money to live was really easy. You know, it's not comparable. You know, I had a my job paid two fifty an hour, and then of course there was overtime, and our rent was eighty five dollars a month. So she had a part time job as a waitress while she was mm -hmm. still going to school, and I had of course a full time job as a printing pressman. So we weren't, I mean, we were not exactly rich, but we certainly we didn't have trouble making yeah. ends meet or paying the rent and 
throwing our little dinner parties, and that's about all we did anyway. So, mm-hmm. you know, our expenses were extremely modest. I remember one time she made a sauce bernaise and it broke, and she didn't know how to fix it, so she threw it away, and I was horrified because that's five dollars worth of ingredients. Oh my God, you know, had to get used to that. Yeah. You know. So many people think about the late '60s in San Francisco and everything that you know, the counterculture. Were you at all involved in what was going no. on? I was a I was a printing pressman, and mm-hmm. um, the you know I was I was definitely involved in the counterculture, but not the the act, yeah. the outward expression mm-hmm. of it. There was a great deal of printing that needed to be done. Of course, I was part of this culture, but I was not out there smoking weed and yeah. being hippie and wearing patchouli because I had no time for that. I, I had absolutely no interest in that. There was. Most of this activity needed a copious amount of printing, and I was doing a copious amount of it. So, so were you printing like the sort of Fillmore East posters and those? We kind printed of some of them. Uh, our, my press was too too small physically, mm-hmm. and um, it was also a single color machine. So I printed a few of them. There was an exhibition at the Oakland Museum of printing of the counterculture and. Mm-hmm political and I was astounded to see how much of it I printed and I have zero memory of any of it right I wasn't I didn't do any posters per se up until 68 by which time a lot of that had kind of ended Mm -hmm. and my interest in the psychedelic was zero I was not wasn't going in that direction at all I was much more influenced by the Jugendstil the German Art Nouveau Mm -hmm. and um, also by Japanese Ukiyo-e which was not anywhere near what the what the psychedelic work was doing. Mm-hmm. So were those the German Art Nouveau and the mm-hmm. Japanese woodcuts? Are those sort of where you started to develop your own signature style? I I don't really know, and my I was very much influenced by the Jugendstil. There was some particularly Ludwig Holbein, mm-hmm. and there was a, a manner of printing, but probably more important than anything else is the machines I had to work with. Mm-hmm. We we couldn't print by four color process. Do you know what that is? Mm-hmm. Okay. We couldn't do that. The machines were far too beat up. And you know the the gears were cla- we had gear clash and we had the cylinders were out of round and so anything printed by four color process looked precisely like crap. And so I was forced to go to solid color lithography. Mm-hmm. And so the solid color means that whatever color you see is actually printed. So obviously you're, you're starting to run out of time, energy, and money above about, I think my first, well, my first poster was one color. And the poster that kind of got everyone's attention was the Velosport poster, which was five colors. Mm-hmm. And so working with solid color, it just makes a completely different look. And so working within the limitations of the equipment, we also had a camera that was too small to photograph the whole image at once. So I had to design everything so it could be cut through. There's some place in every image that you could go through the whole thing and cut it, photograph it in two parts. Okay. And you know, so the, the, the crappy printing press, um, the limitations of the camera we had, my relatively limited skills as a printer all combined to produce a style where I designed things that I could print. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, even though I pushed the boundaries, I didn't design outside of my parameters. I didn't, I wasn't a designer who then handed it to somebody else and yeah. said, you know, make it happen. I, di- I didn't do that. And the other thing that, that being the printing pressman did is I could mess with colors all day long because nobody was saying, well, this is costing me money. You're mm-hmm. standing here messing with the color, but it didn't matter. So, and I'd gotten a lot of experience with color mac- mixing and matching with the cookbook, which I'd learned a whole lot about color. Mm-hmm. Most of the printing I'd done when I was working as just a commercial pressman was black and white, mm-hmm. maybe some red. And that was about it. And when I started doing my own work, I began to see how to mix the colors and to make them work. And, and that evolved relatively quickly. 
a lot of the fundamental attitudes I have toward design and color were heavily influenced by my mother. Her artistic style was very important to me. She taught me a whole lot about the basic principles mm -hmm. of design. And then actively emulating the kind of artwork that I liked. There wasn't any instruction. There wasn't, there wasn't anybody really to instruct me. Yeah. Um, the same with the calligraphy. There wasn't anyone to teach me. Um, I did meet many of the prominent calligraphers, but that was just to meet them because I wanted to meet them. Mm -hmm. Like I went to England and met Alfred Fairbanks, and I went up to Reed College to meet Lloyd J. Reynolds, but that was like, hello, how are you? I've admired your work. Goodbye, mm -hmm. right? And the so I was learning from uh, books, um, and they're one of the reasons I wrote a calligraphy book because there wasn't a calligraphy book. It wasn't. There were some little small ones that were on black and white, and they really weren't very easy to learn from. Mm -hmm. So I wrote one that people could learn from more easily. But what happened, of course, is the best way to learn is to teach. So by teaching, I learned more than any of my students ever did. And with the printing of the posters, a lot of it was learning to deal with the clients, mm -hmm. to convince them that this really weird idea was actually good. And when it began to succeed, then they began to trust me more and more. So for example, the Velosport poster, it's got a big, I don't know if you've seen it, it's got a big locomotive in it, or mm -hmm. two little teeny bicyclists. And they said, what, you know, it's got a big train in it. We don't sell trains, you know. But I managed to persuade them to go with it and it was successful and so then they were happy. The clients, when they'd ask for you for the posters, I mean, unless it was for like an event, what, you know, if it was for like Velisport or something, what did they do with those posters? They, they gave them away at first. Okay. But by the time we got to the Berkeley Arts poster, which was a calendar, they just disappeared too fast. So mm -hmm. they started charging 50 cents for them. And that reduced the... I mean, it was an advertising poster, but when your whole stack of posters evaporates before yeah. your very eyes, they said, okay, it's going to cost you 50 cents. So at that point, the posters started making money for the clients, which didn't hurt things a bit. Mm -hmm. um, I don't remember what I charged for that poster. I do remember the first poster I did for Gene Optin for the kitchen, I charged her $75 for the poster and the printing. And the printing which was the most money she'd ever paid for printing, and the most money I'd ever gotten for was my first commission. Mm -hmm. so. so, I mean, the, the, the thing that can't be overemphasized is that we were a bunch of kids who had experienced, experienced a chain of tremendous successes. We'd, we'd gone up against the University of California and, and one, mm -hmm. we'd gone up against the establishment and established and made tremendous strides in civil rights, and then we were of course busy fighting the war in Vietnam with some degree of success. And basically, we felt that we could do anything. And you know, Alice is opening her restaurant with zero knowledge. She she'd never run a restaurant. She didn't know anything about it. She was a good amateur cook. She was surrounded by her friends who were good amateur cooks. There's not one of them that knew what they were doing. And um, predictably, of course, opening night was la plus grande disaster. It was, it was it, it, you'd have to have been there to believe it. And the, the same was true of my getting started as mm -hmm. a printing pressman. I'd been printing here since I was 19 years old. And uh, by 1971, I think I just turned 25, 26, something like that. And so taking the business over and printing was just what we expected. Mm -hmm. There was no concept of needing grown-ups around. We didn't, we didn't need them, we didn't want them. And the, uh, the, the host of errors we made would have probably stopped anybody else, but we were too young and 
excited to realize that we were doing things wrong. We didn't know. And this, this ignorance plus no concept of failure, it just simply wasn't there. You know, we'd had a string of successes and against tremendous odds, and we just thought, well, that's, this is just normal. I guess this is what we do. We just do stuff and it works. Because why not? Yeah, and if, if it doesn't work, then you just learn and keep going. Yeah, well, if it didn't work, you would just change it and try it again. And the and it can't be overemphasized that living was very cheap. Um, we were still in the post-war period of time when America was the wealthy, powerful nation that didn't really need anything from anybody else. And minimum wage was a living wage. My buck and a quarter an hour uh, as a half-time job put me through college. What are we talking? $80 a, $80 a month? Yeah. Something crazy like that. And that was fine. That was, I mean, I wasn't, you know, buying Cuban cigars or, you know, doing fancy things, but I could eat and pay my tuition. There was no tuition. I could pay my student fees, mm-hmm. pay my rent, and, you know, hit my parents a couple times a month for, for dinner which they were perfectly happy to see me. But the idea of two young people, I was 21, Alice was 22. I, we both just turned 21 and 22. You know, living together and setting up house and having dinner parties, and we were perfectly capable of doing that. Yeah, we did. didn't rely on grown-ups for anything. We didn't like grown-ups very much. They, they hadn't proved so very helpful. I feel like most 21 and 22-year-olds aren't having dinner parties now. <laughs> I don't know. The, the world had changed very, very dramatically. There were a couple things that had happened, not least of which was the introduction of the birth control pill mm-hmm. in the early 1960s. I'm not exactly sure when it hit, but by 1964, pretty much every young woman here in Berkeley was on the birth control pill, which is all that concerned me. Mm-hmm. I wasn't much worried about what it was. I think it was about one in five women of childbearing years by 1965 was on the birth control pill. And the change in culture that that created cannot be overstated. It was, we were catapulted from a sexually repressive, profoundly ignorant 1950s into a completely different rule book. It's like in 1958 when I got what little sex education that I got, which was one hour of the coach coming in and talking to a bunch of very confused juniors, or maybe I was sophomore. That was it. That's your sex ed. Two, they, they handed this big thick rule book full of all sorts of rules, you know, and then they, in 1964, they came and said, will you see that rule book back for a second? Here's a new one. It's blank. <laughs> Nothing in it. It's empty. Right? So the profound change that occurred in society due to the lifting of that particular barrier cannot be overstated. Mm-hmm. And I think we're even now definitely still sorting it out. When was your mother born? Forty-nine. She's exactly the same crowd as me. Mm-hmm. And... She was catapulted into this world of keep your knees together and, you know, you get a ring on it before you go any further than that to, hey, do what you want. For about, oh, I don't know, four or five years there, there was no venereal disease, uh, especially if you remained within your own socioeconomic Mm -hmm. class, which most college students did. Um, In Summer of Love in 1967, introduced us to the wonderful world venereal disease, which we know nothing about. So there was a, a, a wild innocence there for a while. Mm-hmm. And about the time that the girls figured out this wasn't such a great deal, uh, the world had nonetheless changed. Yeah. And with the reintroduction of you know, big-time heavy-duty venereal diseases, or SDIs, S- STDs. STDs, thank you for mixing up my terminology, we had, nonetheless, the world had changed. And of course, by that time, abortion itself was legal. It was effectively illegal in California, legal in California in a way. Um, I haven't researched that too much, but I do know 
that getting an abortion was not that difficult, but that was in California, actually in the big cities in California. And the, the change in that if you don't want a pregnancy, you don't have to have it, and it's also very easy not to get pregnant in the first place, and so boys and girls just changed the way they lived. It was, you know, instead of getting married right out of high school, which is extremely common, yeah. or at worst, right out of college, with, in 1960, 95% of women who went, went to their marriage beds a virgin, and now it's 5%. And this gives you an idea of mm-hmm. what's happened. This tremendously different world, combined with a time when economically it was pretty easy to get along. You know, the rents were very low, food was cheap. You know, a minimum wage job, as I said, was a living wage. Mm-hmm. And me as a skilled worker, I was making two to three times that. And there was one, there was one holiday weekend when I made some shocking amount of money. Somebody wanted a job and they didn't care, and I worked over the 4th of July. I think I was making something like $15 an hour. It was like some stupefying amount of money. It was just like, I made my rent in one day, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, so, and that, that was fairly common. As a, as a skilled worker, you know, OT is kind of part of the deal, so. It was the rare week I didn't get, you know, 10 or 20 hours of OT. So, we were, we were, we had money. And, uh. We spent it on food and books, books, lots of books. We both got our, I think Alice's career and mine are inextricably combi- combined. Mm-hmm. We, we sort of grew up together, we got started together in our businesses at almost exactly the same time. And um, one has reinforced the other. I've done many, many posters for Chez Panisse. Our work has been very well received by the community and in the larger community of the world. You know, Alice's justly renowned for having revolutionized cuisine and you know her humble little non-star restaurant is nonetheless probably the most important restaurant I'm, I don't want to do any support but it really has changed everything it's very hard to describe the world before Shapenese there was nothing to eat you know it was pretty grim and you know I've shared in that same acceptance, mm-hmm. that same enthusiastic acceptance. You know, when Mr. Pete came here in 1966, it was like his one little store revolutionized coffee in the United States. And that's what we had going on for us. You know, you, you open your little store at Shattuck and at Vine and Walnut and sell coffee out of this one little store and it changes everything. We were kind of used to it. And you, you did posters for them and him as well? I did a poster for Mr. Pete, yes. Yeah. Um, so basically, I think that I would describe my career as one of extraordinary good fortune, having planted, been planted in very fertile ground, the acceptance of the community that surrounds me, and the artwork I do is inspired by previous people, and I cannot account for any of my work other than that I am kind of an avenue for the muse. I don't know how familiar you are with muse. Mm-hmm. She, uh, she, she's very kind to me. And she tells me what to do and I do it. And that's about as close as I can get to describing the creative process. When you get a commission, do you instantly get an idea? How? Sometimes, but not very often. Mm-hmm. Most of the time I don't get an idea and it's really hard to sort of sit there and stare at the wall and grind away and one of the biggest problems I have, a problem shared by Alice, is not repeating past success. Uh, one of the things that distinguishes Chez Panisse is they serve a different meal every day. Yeah. And lunch is different from dinner, dinner tonight is different from dinner tomorrow night, it's all seasonal, but there's none of this signature dish, there is no signature dish. And one of the criticisms is there's no signature dish, so you don't really get good at anything, which is countered by saying, well, there's no signature dish, so you never get caught in a complacent rut. But Alice's problem is the same as mine. How do you satisfy the expectations? I mean, 
when Alice, when people come from Australia for their 50th wedding anniversary to have dinner at Chez Panisse, Jesus Christ, I mean, what, how can you do that, you know? And I, I, I've asked the cooks there and they say, we just pretend we're cooking for Alice. And so everybody's Alice. Mm-hmm. Everybody in the restaurant is Alice. And that their food tastes like it too. And, you know, I get paralyzed occasionally by, I produce a poster that's a resounding success and now they want another one, you know? Do you feel you have to top yourself or just keep it sort of different? I can't, I can't describe it. I have to ignore being paralyzed by success. Mm-hmm. I have to, have to ignore repeating a success. I mean, one of the fatal things I think that happens to artists, graphic designers and artists is repeating a success. It's like the same thing that Chapinese has. It, it could make this wonderful dish that it made last night that was a super gigantic success. Mm-hmm. But that's a trap, you know. You'll end up, that'll become one of Chapinese's signature dishes that's served like you can always order that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's death. Or death of a sort of intellectual death. Mm-hmm. And the same pro- I have the same problem of I produced this really successful thing, now I can copy it and do it again and do it again, and now you're doomed. Now you've, you're not, your brain isn't working anymore, your creative impulses aren't really there. So there's, I have sort of a horror of repeating myself, but I have to realize that I'm me, I'm not going to become somebody else magically, and my work does have my signature, whatever that may be, but also uh, we're looking at something that's been going on for over 50 years. So when you look at the work done by 19-year-old David Goins, it might as well be a person from another planet. Mm-hmm. Another thing that both Alice and I share is extraordinary long career careers. There aren't very many restaurants that reach the age of 46. They're really scarce as yeah. hands teeth. And there aren't many professional artists who have careers that last 52 years Mm -hmm. you know it's just it's really unusual so within that of course there's tremendous amount of development I don't know what would happen if we were able to have a meal prepared by Chez Panisse in the first year I know some of the meals were downright inedible some of the meals actually got swiftly thrown into the garbage some of my posters have not been successful and that's something you just got to deal with you know yes it's not successful yes it didn't work no nobody likes it get back on the horse and Mm -hmm. do it again but there's enough success to offset the failure and as for disastrous failures not too many inedible meals not too many some but if you don't take those chances and you always are striving toward the middle well yeah that's nowhere you're nowhere so I mean, I'm not in really in any position to judge my work. You know, check back when I'm dead and uh, tell me what you think. I, I don't know. There's definitely a underlying feeling, mm-hmm. underlying the things that I like, the things that I admire, the things that I copy. But I think of a lot of my work as a lot of variety, although many people say they would recognize a piece of my work immediately. What about it is recognizable immediately? I do not know. That's you'd have to ask them. I mean, I would say I, I think it is as well, but then I can also pick up very different influences, like mm-hmm. Charles Rennie Macintosh over here, Definitely. and then Botticelli or someone over there, Definitely. and Toulouse Lautrec. You yes. know, it, not so much Lautrec. Um, there was like we, there was one Chavonese poster that seemed quite isn't the red with the red hair. Oh, that's the very first one. Yeah. Yes, yeah, definitely. My influence that look like Lautrec are the influences that influenced Lautrec. Mm-hmm. So I'm influenced by the Japanese ukiyo-e, which what, is what Lautrec is refer- referencing. Mm-hmm. The Japanese influences was quite the bomb, excuse me, quite the bombshell. And Lautrec is, and Van Gogh, and Whistler mm-hmm. are going, whoa, this is something I've never seen this before. And they immediately start adopting the elements in the Japanese woodblock prints. Mm-hmm. And my initial influence was those who'd been influenced by, I was not initially aware of the Japanese woodblock prints. Mm-hmm. And when you get a commission, how long does it take you to do it? It depends. The design part is always the hard part for me. And 
once I've got the design worked out, then it's pretty much on rails. You know, the, the getting the design done, getting it get approved by the client, um, and doing the color separations and the printing, maybe, maybe two months, maybe. Depends on how complicated it is. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's been easy. Sometimes the idea just pops right out. And other times, no, it's just like pulling teeth, you mm -hmm. know. But Do you, are you still enjoying the whole process? Oh of yeah, it? sure, totally. Yeah. I really like it. So even though you've had a very long career, you're not. No, I like doing. I like yeah. doing it. It's it's very rewarding to do something that you're good at, that you like, and that you are rewarded with public acclaim and money. Mm -hmm. When people love you, they tell you they love you by giving you money and that just, well you just can't beat that. You know, it's the real sincerity. And the other thing is it helps again, having relatively modest overhead. I mean, I own the building. I bought it in 1980 for a really surprisingly small amount. So I'm not going to be kicked out by a landlord raising my rent because mm -hmm. I am the landlord. I bought a house in 1980 also, which would be you would, would be angry with you with me if I told you what I paid for it so you know the big expenses of life rent and mortgage mm -hmm. and things like they're very small for me um, my I have a very modest lifestyle I don't own a car um, I don't spend much money and so I don't need much money yeah. which is a good thing because I don't make much money so it, it all works out where I don't have to I don't have a burden of debt. I don't have to worry about my landlord. I don't have to worry about, you know, where I'm living because they've raised the rent again. Yeah. Um, the equipment here, needless to say, is bought and paid for years ago. There's, there's no, there's no overhead. The overhead here is like the electrical bill, you know. And the Richard and I work together. He's a letterpress printer, and we have sort of separate existences. He mm -hmm. he runs his letterpress, I run my offset. I do run some letterpress work. We have our own design businesses. We're not we're not physically or financially connected in any way. Okay. So um, again we have very modest overhead. He lives in a rent control apartment and he lives three blocks from here. I live nine blocks from here. You know yes. it doesn't hurt that you don't have a lot of bills coming in. Yeah, I mean it seems like you've sort of constructed the life exactly as you would works for best for you without I've been being sort very of fortunate in that respect and you know having to commute from Fairfield because that's where I live to a job here because that's what pays the, you know no mm -hmm. I don't have to do that so again I think being fortunate in when I was born mm -hmm. and the circumstances under which I was raised uh, two very highly educated parents who were concerned with getting highly educated children and being in a community that welcomed the kind of things that I was good at, that I liked doing, and embraced my efforts at social change, encouraged, you know, you've been arrested again, great, you know. <laughs> it's, so it's, it's, I think, lots of luck. Um, being at the right place at the right time, lots of community support, and um, having something to say and the wherewithal to say it. Mm -hmm. I mean, my, my tool of expression is a four-ton machine, you know, it's, you don't, those, you can't put those just any place, you know, you can't put that in your garage. Yeah. Um, and the means by which I express myself is a skilled trade, which I learned over a period of many years. Luck, I think it's all about luck. I'd say I'm very lucky. Mm -hmm. I think you've made a lot of the luck. You know, made, made, mm. some, made something of what is I being think, granted to you. I think that, luck. I think when you've had successes, it breeds success. Mm. And the successes we had as very young people with the free speech movement, with the anti-war movement, with the civil rights movement, with the general freedom we had, with the explosion in the world of um, 
sexual relationships that was completely new, we felt like we could do anything, that nothing was going to stop us, and we certainly weren't going to let grown-ups stop us. And there was an incentive to do things. My roommate, Jan Wenner, went on to establish the Rolling Stone. That was my roommate, you know? And I could give you a list as long as my arm of exactly that kind of thing of people with whom I'm friends then, were friends then. Mm-hmm. You know, my good friend David Peoples wrote, Blade Runner wrote, you know, Unforgiven. Yeah. He lives like up the street, right? Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing. It's that, why don't you just write a screenplay and it'll, and then get it optioned by Francis Coppola? Well, why not? You know? It's just that kind of community. And we're surrounded by people who are highly creative. You know, the concert I went to yesterday is by friend, well, involved friends of mine who are Berkeley residents. They're just ordinary people, except they have really good voices or they can play musical instruments really well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I go to their concerts. They have my posters on their walls. They eat at shape. I mean, it's all this big. It's all this big ball of people helping each other, mm-hmm. people in embracing what the other person does. And to some extent, this is a self-selecting community. Um, there's not that much intercourse between the university students and the community. There's, there's more than there used to be. Uh, the university is the economic engine that powers Berkeley. But also there's a great deal of civic pride. Look what we can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there any interconnection between sort of what's going on in San Francisco and tech and Silicon Valley and everything that's going on sort of around? There's probably a lot of spillover. Well, uh, most of it, much of the tech came out of Berkeley and Stanford. Mm-hmm. So the people that established the Silicon Valley and the whole tech boom, this is all local boys and girls. Um, these are people I know, and the in the 60s, in the 1960s and 70s, these people were, well, they're all my age, or, or even younger, and so you'd sort of draw in this talent, and you get jobs in Wozniak in their garage, mm-hmm. you know, they didn't, they weren't consciously setting about changing the world, but it's just what happened, mm-hmm. and this is the kind of thing that we're just we just think of as normal, you know. These are normal people doing normal things, and all of them very young. It's kind of like nobody told us we couldn't. Nobody said we were wrong. Well, a lot of people said we were wrong, actually. We just didn't pay any attention. We didn't pay any attention <laughs> because we were perfectly right for us. Yeah. We we weren't seeking the world's approval. We were just seeking Berkeley's approval. And turned out that that was good enough. You you wrote a history of the free speech mo- movement, right? Yes, I did. Did you enjoy putting that together? Oh yeah, sure. It was uh, the interesting thing there again is that probably I was the only person that could do that. Mm-hmm. The reason is I knew what was going. I was of course heavily involved in it, but I fell upon a great a box full of tapes that had been made by uh, Marston Schultz at the time recorded people, interviews with the people that were involved, and they just sat in a box for, I don't know, I thought it was 45 years, yeah. something like that. And transcribing them, I would honestly say there may be a handful of people who could transcribe those and make sense out of them. Because you remember, we went to, you know, that, you couldn't understand half of it, but I knew what was going on. Mm-hmm. So I could, I could accurately transcribe them for the most part because I was there. And I don't think anyone else, except for maybe a small group of people who were actively involved throughout the entirety of the free speech movement, could have transcribed those tapes. I don't think it would be possible. Mm -hmm. And then again, I had direct access to materials that no one else had access to. Uh, Marston Schultz's material was there, but he wouldn't give it to anybody else. You know, other people asked him for it, and he refused. So I asked him for it, and he gave it all to me, including the original tape recorder. Mm-hmm. which is what I used to listen to the tapes. And so there again, I was very well situated to write the book, and had I not written it, 
you would have outside accounts. You'd mm -hmm. have people who were, who were writing about the free speech movement, but not necessarily drawing on primary sources. And you can't get much more of a primary source than someone who's actually there. Yeah. Right? Admittedly, it's going to be biased. It's going to be myopic. But, you know, I'll let the historians sort that out. I don't particularly care. I'd rather read something like... Uh, the Bernal Diaz account of the conquest of New Spain, who was a foot soldier with Cortez, writing about what he did. I don't really need historians to tell me what he did. He's telling me what mm -hmm. he did. Worm's eye view, a foot soldier, big picture, not there. But this is information that can only be gotten from a, a first-hand, you know, a primary source. And for all its faults, it's primary source material. All the, all the voices are primary voices. All the voices in there are people who were there. Yeah. Right? So it's authentic, if nothing else, and it's got a lot of footnotes. Amazing. A lot. It shows a very well-researched... Well, I didn't really need to research it. Yeah. You know, I mean, I had to refresh my memory, mm -hmm. but uh, having these tapes was incredibly valuable, and corroborating that information. It's a primary source. Should a historian in the future wish to research this subject, that'll be a book they'll use because mm -hmm. it's got invaluable information. Of all of the sort of different things you've done, the, like this history mm -hmm. book and the posters and calligraphy book and cookbooks and mm -hmm. all the other projects, what do, you, do you have a favorite? Do you have a, something you're most proud of? Yeah. I think, I think I always like my most recent work the best. Mm -hmm. you know? And then it's you know, kind of done with it. You know, the big things that I think are difficult in people's careers, a lot of financial difficulties or difficulties with acceptance. Um, you know, people don't like your work or they don't understand it or you're ahead of your time or you're, you know, you're trying to do your work and nobody buys it that hasn't been true for me. Mm -hmm. So, as I say, I've had a lot of acceptance. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not one of these Van Goghs who sells nothing during his lifetime and goes crazy and cuts off his ear. You know, that hasn't happened to me. Yet. How does it feel to know that your posters, which are basically advertisements for yeah, something local, what they are. are then in people's homes all over the world? Well, it's very nice. It's also nice for my clients. Um, I don't know that you go to shape in these because of my posters. I don't think anybody does, but I think it does. They do create sort of a mood, you know, yeah. that you get sense of what it is going to be like. Sort of a commemoration. Yeah. You know, the the posters make you aware. Of my my attitude toward advertising, which is what posters are, is that nobody can make anybody do anything, and also you're not going to buy it if you don't know about it. Mm -hmm. So. Um, my posters are non-persuasive. I don't have any of that hortatory, uh, do this by that. Mm -hmm. uh, you will be bigger and stronger, taller, your hair will be blonder, your teeth will be whiter. No, I don't say that because I don't think there's any need to I don't think there's any reason to say it. I think that the fundamental problem with advertising is that it thinks it makes people do things. I don't think it does. I think that it's I can make you aware of something, I can mm -hmm. lie to you, and that's not gonna work very well. If I tell you that a product does something that it doesn't do, that's not gonna work too terribly well. I think I'm making you aware of a product or service, and my interest is in seducing you. I want you to like the poster so that you put it on your wall because it's pretty, because you like it. Mm -hmm. and you may not be consciously aware that you're putting an ad on your wall. It's an ad. Mm -hmm. It's an ad for Chez Panisse or for Velosport Bicycles or for the uh, UC Botanical Garden or for Los Angeles Public Library. It's, it's not, you know, it, it's, it's telling you that Pete's Coffee exists and it's got an image on it that's nice, that you like, and you put it on your wall. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't make you buy Pete's Coffee. It just makes you aware of Pete's Coffee. Is that why you always keep the text very minimal? I think that... I'm not writing the King James Bible here, you know. We're, you're, you're, you're supposed to take a poster in in a very brief period of time, basing on the work of the Jugendstil, 
and its earlier influences, you should have a strong central image. Text and image should be integrated. The image explains the text, the text explains the image, just like a cartoon in the New Yorker. Just the cartoon, mm -hmm. that doesn't work. Just the words, that doesn't work. You have to work together. So use complementary colors, very limited color range. This is some of the things I learned from my mother. You know, two colors, black and white, is a basic rule. And I developed something which I didn't realize until later it was pointed out to me. And I'm not sure where I got it, probably from my mom, along with most of the other stuff I learned. To some extent, let me show you here. The posters uh, do what's called trapping your eye, where you can't get out. For example, you read jazz, you go up across Hoagie Carmichael's head, circle down, back to jazz. You're caught in a little loop. You can't get out. Mm -hmm. And they're all like that. And this was not something I was aware of until I had been doing it for about 20 years. I didn't realize I was unconsciously making a little circle. Ma making something you can't get out of. You have to willfully stop looking at it. You have to, you have to stop looking at it intentionally. Mm -hmm. And so this is, again, it's easier for you to look at than not to look at. So I'm seducing your eye. And with the colors, they're very soft. I don't like bright colors. I don't like the harsh. A.M. Cassandra called a poster a visual siren. And I don't have visual sirens. I have visual uh, time to go to sleep music, I guess, would be the difference. Where the, the idea of it, it doesn't force you to look at it. It's not yelling at you all the time. And it's gently seductive. My friend Elsa Knight Thompson, no longer with us, who was the original director of KPFA Radio, argued that art was subversive. That art alone would turn you into a person who was aware of your environment. You wanted to change things. And say, here's some music you've never heard before. Here's a lecture you've never heard mm -hmm. of on a subject you don't know anything about. And if you open your ears to that, you will become revolutionary. And not, not in the revolutionary, you know, blood of the up to the armpit sort of thing. It's where you, you learn, you learn more to think, you learn to welcome new things, mm -hmm. you question the old things, and that's kind of my attitude too, that these posters are in a very quiet way subversive. They make you want to look at things in a new way. And that's very much from Elsa Knight Thompson, mm. her, her uh, KPFA influence back before KPFA yelled in your ear all the time. Another element in these posters, largely gotten from Magritte, Renee Magritte, and the Dadaist is the idea of a visual pun. Many of the posters have elements of visual puns. Optometry poster, for example, is you immediately see that it's an eye chart, but it's an eye chart with animals, and you got the big E at the top. But I was thrilled the other day, I don't think he was three, I think he was like two and a half, and he immediately began using it as an eye chart. And he's a little <laughs> illiterate two-and-a-half-year-old. And he instantly did exactly what he was supposed to do with it. And I was totally thrilled. Uh, I designed it when my nieces were two and four, and they couldn't read. They said, well, how do you check? How can you check their eyes? Mm -hmm. you know? So this little boy goes and he says, elephant, camel, or, you know, and there's some things he didn't know what they were, which was really fun. But that's, that's an example of a visual pun, and if you're familiar with Magritte, he does that all the time. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, feet turning into shoes, a mermaid that's a fish for a head, and the human legs for a, a body, and so on and so forth. So, a whole lot of that influence. The Dadaist, surrealist, I guess, I guess Magritte falls into the surrealist camp. But the idea of oblique references rather than direct references, like the add here for the furniture, the place that upholsters furniture and sells upholstery, it's two cats being comfortable on a chair. I mean, I really can't think of anything that says, we're really comfy, yeah. is what cats do. They're, they sit around on comfortable things, and so on. So it does, it's not in all of them all the time, mm -hmm. but there is that very strong influence of uh, visual puns and soft colors, soft images, very rarely strident, very rarely hortatory, almost never combative, 
some cases just purely decorative. I print at maximum 18 inches wide, maximum 24 inches high, and almost always 24 inches high. Mm -hmm. There are a few posters that are smaller because they were printed on smaller machines. Uh, there's a 22 inch there. The first poster, that Rainbow Zenith poster, was printed on a 22 inch Harris. So that's the press we had, and that's what mm -hmm. we printed it. So when it was printed again on the larger press, we just stayed with the smaller size. So for the most part, it's dictated by the machine itself. Oh. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks again for listening to this conversation with David Lance Coins. We have many wonderful conversations coming up in the next few weeks with journalists, makeup artists, and fashion and textile designers. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode. All episode materials are available at ladyworld.tv and on our newsletter. Thanks.